Peace We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 130 organizations working globally in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Host Tanya Domi will interview AFP's global partners, expert guests, and policy advocates on how they tackle the challenging work of conflict prevention and peace building in a world riddled by increasing violent conflict and more. During this episode of the Peace We Build It podcast, we explore the nexus of COVID, climate change, and conflict reflecting the escalation of global fragility. Our guests today include Dr. Maisha Alam, who is a senior advisor to the policy and advocacy and research and learning teams at Mercy Corps, where her work focuses on strategies to connect evidence-based research for policymakers and practitioners. Dr. Alam previously helped establish and has served as deputy director of the Georgetown University Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, and also worked with the United Nations, World Bank, the OSCE, and various NGOs. The author of two books and numerous other articles, she has taught at Georgetown University, New York University, and holds a PhD in political science from Yale University. Dr. Ryan Sheely is Director of Research in Conflict and Governance at Mercy Corps. His research is focused on using mixed methods to design and evaluate programs focused on empowering citizens and building effective, accountable states. His academic research has been published in World Development, Comparative Political Studies, Social Science Quarterly, and Ecological Modeling. Prior to joining Mercy Corps, he spent 10 years on the faculty at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He holds a PhD in political science from Yale University. Liz Hume is the acting CEO and president of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. Liz is a seasoned expert in international policy and foreign assistance and has worked for the U.S. government and a number of multilateral organizations internationally carrying out complex conflict prevention and governance programs in conflict-affected and fragile states in Asia, Eastern Europe, and Africa. She joined the Alliance for Peacebuilding in 2015 as Senior Director of Programs and Strategy was promoted to vice president in 2018 and became acting CEO and president in December, 2020. We further explore Mercy Corps' recent report published in June, 2021, titled A Clash of Contagions, the impact of COVID-19 on Nigeria, Colombia, and Afghanistan. This strategic and forward-looking report is the culmination of a year-long rigorous analysis by Mercy Corps based on semi-structured interviews and participatory workshops involving more than 600 persons. The report also identifies three primary pathways through which the pandemic and response measures are shaping conflict dynamics and processes analyzing the far-reaching implications of the research findings and offers recommendations to donors, governments, policymakers, and practitioners. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Peace We Build It podcast, Maisha Alam and Ryan Sheely from Mercy Corps, and welcome back, Liz Hume. Thank you so much, Tanya, and it's great to have two incredible researchers from Mercy Corps. Uh, Their work is phenomenal and uh, the data they present on all of this work is, is fantastic. So I'm so happy they're here with us. Peace is waning around the world. The number of armed conflicts has reached a 30 year high. Forced displacement remains at record levels and civil unrest is on the rise. 205 million people currently need humanitarian assistance and protection. About one in 33 people 
a significant increase from 2020 and the highest figure in decades. The COVID-19 pandemic and an unprecedented effort to distribute vaccines across the globe will likely exacerbate these trends. To help address the threat of violent conflict and its myriad consequences, the Biden administration has issued a report on July 4th for the international COVID-19 response and recovery. This is an important conversation we are now going to enter, and I would like Liz Hume to address the situation from the Alliance for Peace Building's perspective. Thank you so much, Tanya. COVID-19, this global pandemic, the Alliance for Peacebuilding, going back into early 2020, put out a policy, put out a statement, wrote articles on it, and made it very clear, this is more than just a health crisis. It is fueling and what we called stabilization in reverse by increasing instability and violence, exacerbating conflict dynamics and conflict-affected and fragile states. And it has just exacerbated all the fragility and rising conflict dynamics that you talked about. And one of the things that's really important is an infectious disease vulnerability index shows that conflict is present in the 25 countries most vulnerable to infectious diseases. 22 of them are in Africa. The other three are Afghanistan, Yemen, and Haiti. This is where we have um, especially in Africa, some of the most um, you know, fragile states and conflict-affected states. So that's just really what we want to make it very clear. This is not just a health and humanitarian response, how the Trump administration treated it, but even the current administration, you know, their strategy has come out and uh, conflict is treated in the fourth pillar, you know, about three lines down. We're still seeing a very siloed, a strategy that's kind of treated more as a linear process. And I don't think you have to look any further than the United States to see how COVID and the, the pandemic has impacted our society. We just got really, really lucky with the vaccine. Otherwise, you know, we would have had more Americans dying. And one of the big things that we have really seen is that countries where you have high social cohesion do really well. In Africa, some countries like Senegal and Ghana have gotten really great praise uh, for their government transparency and their ability to work on the pandemic. And again, you know, the U.S. just got super lucky. Uh, we actually, under the Fund for Peace, the Fragile State Index, it showed that the United States this year, we did the worst in social cohesion. We were a country that had the highest decline in social cohesion. And that was evident in the way that the United States dealt with the pandemic. Thanks very much. So as I mentioned, the Biden administration's plan was just uh, introduced and Liz talked about it with respect to it being a bit siloed and linear. And obviously our guests are gonna be quite informed on how these things are not linear at all, but they're very synergistic. Maisha, would you mind uh, giving us the view of Mercy Corps on the Biden administration's new plan? And we're going to be talking about the Global Fragility Act and how your new report advances the goals of the Global Fragility Act. But if we could start with the latest report issued by the Biden administration on their policy and plan going forward. Thanks so much, Tanya, and thank you also to Liz and the Alliance for Peacebuilding for having us on. I know Ryan and I are eager to have this opportunity and to speak to your um, broad audience. You know, in terms of the U.S. global COVID-19 relief and recovery framework that was recently released, we were really glad to see that the framework not only addresses the health impacts of the pandemic, which are obviously devastating and incredibly important and must be addressed in order to bring this pandemic to an end, but also to address the socioeconomic impacts of the pandemic. As Liz mentioned earlier, the pandemic is so much more than a global health crisis, and it certainly has caused enormous economic downturn at the macro level for countries, but also at the individual household level. And these effects are being felt particularly in fragile and conflict-affected settings. 
At the same time, we were also glad to see that there was a reference to conflict and fragility and the need to, you know, protect human rights, address good governance and address fragility. But as Liz mentioned, there wasn't as robust a focus as I think our report uh, that Ryan and I, you know, are, are going to be talking about more demonstrates the real need for that conflict prevention must be integrated into all relief and recovery efforts for the pandemic. And that without doing so, leaving the dynamics that we're seeing through our research unchecked really increases the potential for new evolving and continuing armed conflicts. And obviously that's something that we want to avoid and we want to make sure that we are advancing peace and that we are advancing stability. Thanks. Ryan, can you talk about how um, the Biden administration plan on the, on this recovery and response. Can you talk about how it compares to previous administrations? Well, I think that, um, as Maisha and Liz mentioned, I think that adding a focus that um, the impacts of this pandemic is more than just about health is a right place to start. And, um, you know, our research and uh, our work throughout this pandemic um, has shown that the impacts of um, COVID-19 and responses to it on economic livelihoods and on, um, on conflict dynamics really underscore this need for holistic responses. Um, because I think that there is a, a sense of, of really enhancing and increasing silos between a public health response and even debating what an appropriate level of public health response is. And I think that the inclusion of both the primary and secondary effects of um, the pandemic is a great start, but really thinking how that is implemented um, and resourced uh, both through um, the administration's COVID response plan and other instruments like the GFA, as you mentioned, are important. Sure. So just for our audience, and many probably are aware, but not everybody, and certainly not a lay audience. Um, but a key requirement of the Fragility Act is to enhance the effectiveness of U.S. assistance by improving assessment, monitoring, and evaluation by implementing agencies. But Mercy Corps has also put forward a report about the current situation in the world selecting three countries to to do case studies on, Nigeria, Colombia, and Afghanistan, uh, with respect to your recently released report, A Clash of Contagions. It would seem that this report actually provides a significant amount of information to the public and to the U.S. government as well. Can you tell us, uh, Maisha, what did your research in this report, first of all, I'd like to hear why you selected Nigeria, Colombia, and Afghanistan, and maybe in the latter case, it's obvious, but I would like to hear your thoughts on that and how this report really viewed COVID-19, how's it shaping conflict in these three countries? If we could open there, and then I want to bring Ryan in on this discussion too. So. Please give your uh, opening comments on that. Thanks so much, Tanya. Well, as you know, and as I'm sure most of your listeners know, Mercy Corps is a global humanitarian development and peace building organization. We operate in more than 40 countries across the globe, many of which are fragile or conflict affected. And as this pandemic was getting underway and it was becoming increasingly clear that this was going to be a long and global challenge, um, the spread of this virus, We were eager to better understand how the pandemic and response measures to contain it without vaccines was affecting conflict across the globe and in the countries certainly where we work. Much of the research that exists around this topic, and certainly when we began this study more than a year ago, relied largely on kind of narrow indicators, if you will, on whether or not violent incidents were taking place. Now, counting or tallying up violent incidents is one approach for trying to understand whether or not there's conflict, but it's certainly not the only approach. And not only that, it provides an incomplete picture of when there may be conflict 
risks developing and how communities are experiencing them. So one of the things that we were eager to do with this report and this research endeavor was to really draw on Mercy Corps' research expertise and our in-country presence and the deep networks that we have in the communities where we work. And so we selected these three case studies uh, for geographic variation because they are quite different in terms of the dynamics of fragility that existed and within them before the pandemic set on. And also because we were curious to learn whether or not there were going to be similarities or differences, again, in quite three distinct settings. I can pause there and we can talk more about findings, but I can pause there in case Ryan wants to jump in a little bit as well. Yeah, please. I think you described it very well, Maisha. And, you know, we were, because COVID-19 is, is a global phenomenon, we wanted to really look at this diversity of contexts in which this shock is being experienced. And so thinking about a range of types of conflict, ranging from a really long lasting um, you know, insurgency and anti-state conflict in, in Afghanistan um, to Colombia, which you know, by many accounts has moved into a post-conflict mode, but still with challenges around implementation of uh, peace agreements and ongoing criminal violence. And then Nigeria, which has you know, pervasive insecurity nationwide, and then a number of different types of conflict and violence, ranging from intercommunal conflict in North Central and Middle Belt to widespread banditry in the Northwest to ongoing insurgencies in the Northeast. So really, you know, a range of types and levels of intensity of conflict. And then, as I alluded, um, we were sure to then sample different sites within each country, and they also ensure diversity across gender, um, age, and other dimensions within our interviews and workshops um, in communities. And so the aim here was really centering the perceptions, experience, and aspirations of community members themselves and really understanding life during this year, right? And these both what was uniquely locally uh, dependent, but then by having this broad sample, starting to understand some of these common threads as well and, and shared experiences um, and, and um, dynamics. Yes, and I mean, it's a year-long endeavor, I understand, and we're talking about a qualitative study, are we not, and that included individual interviews of more than 600 persons. Is that correct, Ryan? Yeah, that is that is correct. And it was, you know, as you might expect from a study on COVID-19 and conflict, the logistics of carrying out this qualitative research was shaped by both of those. And so we had to think very carefully about reaching communities while also conducting the research safely. So taking um, precautions around social distancing, around masks and personal protective equipment for participants and interviewers, and also really ensuring conflict sensitivity within the research itself, you know, those precautions and that amount of careful logistics, um, which we carried out with our field teams and consultant researchers in each country, enabled us to then um, really gather this rich participatory qualitative data in this set of, of communities um, across our three case study um, countries. And has Mercy Corps been able to brief um, this report to the U.S. government? We're in the process of doing that. And certainly, you know, the, the report is brand new and we are eager to share our findings and our implications and, and, and kind of the, the recommendations that emerge from that analysis widely, including certainly with colleagues in the U.S. government. And I think the other thing that's really important to add with respect to the scope of the research was within these three countries, we were conducting the field work in a combination of urban, peri-urban and rural mm -hmm. settings. And we were very mm -hmm. deliberate about that. As Ryan mentioned, in addition to thinking about gender and age, we were also eager to kind of say, OK, these are vast countries, each of them. How can we look at multiple locations and communities across multiple locations? whether they are, you know, in, in city centers or in countryside, and how can we learn from the diversity of experiences that they may be having. And Ryan, uh, with respect to these three countries, how was it that Mercy Corps concluded to go? Obviously, these are three separate geographical areas. 
but what was the thinking behind the selection of Nigeria, Colombia, and Afghanistan? Yeah, thanks. Well, we we narrowed these down from a much longer list, and you know, obviously, our starting point was countries where we work, and as Mayesha mentioned, we work in forty countries globally, mm-hmm. so that gave us a base to work with. Um, and then we actually did, you know, take a broad look at you know the breadth of types of conflict. And I was mentioning earlier, you know, we had an intuition that it's possible that what we saw is that many prior discussions in the first months of the pandemic were speaking in broad brush about conflict and how it might be shaped by the pandemic. But we're not looking with a lot of nuance on types of conflict and with a a deliberate focus. So we really tried to get this mix of anti-state violence and insurgency, criminal violence, and intercommunal conflict. So we chose our sites to really give us variation on that, as well as in that level of intensity and activeness of um, conflict. I will say we actually had a fourth case study. We We were starting research in Ethiopia, although we were not planning on conducting research in Tigray, that ongoing crisis and and sensitivity made it, that was like one bar that was uh, even too high for our, our logistics. For, so your, we, for your team. Yeah, yeah, for our team. So we had to pause that one, which is a challenge because it is a really important case and a, a very important um, setting. Building in that diversity of context was really crucial in our case selection process. Very interesting. So you have a series of findings, and the one that I was really struck by uh, that we also see here at home, and I, I, I want Liz to expound on that, there was a, um, a general mistrust in government. And I would like to have a you know, broader, broader conversation on the findings, but it's very clear that to the extent that government has been ineffective, even in all the Western developed countries, you've seen the disruption and the growing mistrust in government leaders and institutions. Uh, Maisha, can you expound on these first findings? I understand it's government leaders and institutions, including increasing economic hardship and resource scarcity, and then how that disrupts and erodes social cohesion. Sure, Tanya. So our research revealed three primary pathways, if you will, by which the pandemic and response measures have been undermining um, stability and exacerbating conflict Mm -hmm. risks. So the first of these three pathways is a diminishing trust in government. And this really stems in large part from, you know, the fact that um, in many places, the government hasn't been able to provide for communities the kind of services, protection and support that they would need in order to cope with the enormous shocks of the pandemic. The second pathway that we identified uh, was an increase in economic hardship and resource scarcity. And the third was disrupting social cohesion, both within and between communities. And a common thread throughout these pathways, if you will, is that governments have, as I mentioned, struggled to provide services, maintain a presence in contested areas, and help communities deal with the health, economic, and social consequences of the pandemic. And at the same time, Armed opposition groups, criminal networks, banditry gangs, and other disruptive actors have essentially capitalized on the pandemic to expand their spheres of influence. For example, you know, one of the things that we found was that there's this deep sense of abandonment um, that communities are feeling. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, um, they are having to kind of make difficult choices on how they're going to get by. So that I think is, is, is incredibly important. But, you know, to your question earlier, this diminishing trust in government is certainly not unique to these three countries. And even as we've been sharing our findings and exchanging knowledge within Mercy Corps and with other country teams, this is a theme that keeps coming up over and over again. Interesting. It seems to be a fault line for a number of countries, and it's a really difficult environment. Is it Ryan, no, Tanya, can I, is yeah, it okay please. if I just pop in? Yeah. Yeah, yeah please. I also, I also want to say and just kind of give us the baseline. You know, here in the United States and in other Western countries, you know, not that the pandemic is over because now, you know, we have right. the Delta variant that is 
coming on strong. I think in the U.S. it's what 83% of the cases now. But in these countries, vaccine rollout hasn't really happened. The figures are quite small still. Um, so we have to remember that while you know we're reopening and moving on, and you know in some places within the United States or the UK, that's not the case for many of these countries. So I think that's a really important, just kind of a baseline. You know, we've already, if you want the vaccine in the U.S., you can get it for free. Um, and we vaccinated our kids, you know, at 12 years old and up, and we're already talking about boosters. So I just think that's really important. And then just to really, you know, be really clear about some of the other issues that we're seeing. And, and I think, Maisie, you said it really well, that that vacuum that's there. You know, we've seen, you know, in places where ISIS has stepped in and actually used it as, you know, a way to show, see, we're delivering services in areas. Also, you know, in places like Uganda and other places, you've seen an incredible, under the cover of COVID, you've seen a lot of democratic backsliding as well and power grabs. So, you know, I think it just goes to the point, you know, if we're looking, you know, for violence, you know, protests or things like that to count, there's so much more there that you have to be looking at. And a really important point is the impact on women. Violence against women has skyrocketed. They were at home. They were trapped with their abusers. There's a lot more there that's, a, that's also a lot more hidden. If I can just jump in here really, really quickly, Please. Liz, because I think what you're saying is very much resonates, you know, with us and our research as well. And, and I think you, you, you touched on this, which is the absence of violence doesn't mean the presence of peace and the absence of violence doesn't mean the absence of conflict, right? And, and Alliance for Peace Buildings listeners will certainly understand this. And I think this is exactly that what we were trying to get at. And the other kind of major takeaway from our research is not only understanding different types of conflict, as Ryan mentioned, but also different types of violence. And, and, and Liz, you, you pointed to this, whether we're talking about kind of gender-based violence um, uh, within households or outside, um, you know, outside of homes and, and so on and so forth. You know, our research reveals and, and our, our experiences in countries demonstrates that it's really, really important to pay attention to the differential impacts on different segments of society. Whether we're talking about women, for example, as you alluded to, Liz, or with youth, you know, one of the, the really interesting and, and concerning findings of our research is that, you know, as young people have been kept from being able to go to school or maybe have their jobs outside of the home and so on and so forth, it's really made them that much more vulnerable to our recruitment by armed insurgent groups, as well as banditry and criminal gangs, right? And so what, what does that mean in terms of the future? Also, another thing that, you know, we're, we know that is, that's been, that's been a, that's been a trend is not only the increase in domestic violence, Liz, that you mentioned and the vulnerabilities that the unique and disproportionate vulnerabilities that women face to that kind of violence, but also an uptick in child marriage and early marriage. You know, there's economic hardship as schools are closed, as there's these increasing pressures and they're prolonged, right? We're now talking about more than a year and a half. What are the coping mechanisms, often high risk, that families and communities are having to take in order to endure? It's interesting, Liz's comment about COVID not only being disruptive, but also having a negative effect on democratic practices, and we see democratic backsliding. I'd just like to point out, Liz pointed out to Uganda, but just recently in Uganda, the government has introduced once again a ban on same-sex relations, which is actually counter to their signature on you know, the International Convention for Civil and Political Rights. So, you know, it's definitely affecting women and children in different ways, but it's also affecting vulnerable minorities like the LGBTI communities around the world, including in Europe, I might add. There's tremendous crackdown right now that they're carrying out under this emergency, and they're squelching 
the ability to freely um, assemble and, and claim your rights, claim your human rights. So it's a disturbing pattern. Uh, but more broadly, uh, because it's been mentioned, is the fact that there's such a great need for humanitarian assistance right now with so many people on the move throughout the world. Ryan, do you have any comments on that in terms of how this is operating and, and the effect on humanitarian assistance, clearly a core mission of Mercy Corps? Yeah. So I think that, I mean, you know, if this takeaway is that COVID-19 and the response have increased the risk of conflict, even where it's not triggered immediate violence, um, then it really, you know, underlines both the need for not only the an amount of humanitarian assistance, but it's also how it's done, right? And the, this really importance of thinking about conflict prevention and conflict sensitivity into COVID-19 relief and recovery efforts and into humanitarian response. Even though there's been lots of discussion about the triple nexus for quite some time, it needs to become more than a slogan. And to really think about a holistic response that really takes um, in hand the economic hardship social cohesion and public trust, and how to build them in tandem. So this means both, again, sufficient resourcing, but also breaking down silos in programming, designing programs that really attend to these complex interlinkages of these underlying uh, dynamics that are fueling conflict and conflict risk. Interesting. Uh, Liz, with regard to um, the Alliance's work on the Global Fragility Act and I know that you've had a lot of engagement on this and initiatives, and this is kind of synergistic work. And I, I wonder if, what's the connection here, not only uh, for the Alliance, but with Mercy Corps and other members of the Alliance groups in your global network, how that is now being leveraged given the consequences of COVID. Well, if you're talking about the Global Fragility Act or exactly what Mercy Corps and AFP have been calling for, we're calling for a multi-sectoral approach. Mm -hmm. And you see it also in the Biden root causes strategy for the Northern Triangle. Go and look at what is driving the conflict dynamics. What are the grievances? Where's the resiliency? Like what's keeping, you know, a, not a lid on the conflict, but what's, you mm -hmm. know, where's, what's that resiliency that's working in a country or a region? And then address that. And that's exactly what, you know, the, the new Northern Triangle strategy says. Address the root causes of migration. Okay, well, violence, corruption, uh, you know, I mean, look at what's driving people to leave. And I think that's the exact same thing that we're talking about here. There are some symptoms of, you know, COVID, for example, disinformation and misinformation are huge um, in terms of trust and understanding what the actual problem is and you know what steps communities need to do to protect themselves. But if you go back and say, okay, well, that's a symptom, what's a cause? You're looking at lack of trust in a government, let's say, or you know, weak and ineffective and illegitimate governance. We'll then address that. Um, and so I think the other problem, and, and I know Ryan and Maisha kind of alluded to this earlier as well, and, and this goes back to the COVID strategy and also going back into the Global Fragility Act. I mean, the whole point of it is that the Global Fragility Act address the sources of the conflict, of the conflict dynamics. Like, don't just go into a country and say, we're going to make this a middle-income country. Uh, we're going to, you know, it'll be safe and prosperous. Like, no, we are going to reduce violence. We are going to build, you know, sustainable peace by doing X, Y, and Z. And really look at what is driving the conflict. And you can't do it in two to three years. Mm -hmm. We're talking about at least 10 years. And then you can't also, I was actually talking to somebody in the U.S. government the other day, and then you can't say, you know, if you look at Haiti, for example, the bulk of the funding that has gone in there is health. Now, we're not saying, you know, take away the health funding, but what you're saying is you have to right size it and balance it so that, you know, you are addressing the drivers of conflict as well. And instead, what happens a lot, and I'm afraid this is what's going to happen with the COVID strategy, is that 
you know, health and humanitarian will get the bulk of funding and attention. And then in a country, they'll be like, here's your $2 million. Can you fix these conflict dynamics? Oh, and, and you know, the project will be three years. Um, it, you know, it just doesn't work that way. That is the point of the Global Fragility Act. And even, you know, bipartisan Republicans and Democrats, both the Senate and the House have said, we have to get at these upstream prevention. We have to prevent conflict. And the way you do it is longer term programming, more resources, a lot more data and evidence about what works and doesn't, and programming against those conflict dynamics. If I can also just jump in and add to that, you know, uh, Tanya, earlier you had mentioned kind of humanitarian need. And, and the fact of the matter is that over the course of the pandemic and since it began, global humanitarian need has spiked by more than 40%, right? And yet humanitarian need is being unmet or, or, or going unmet. And so in addition to, you know, fully implementing in robust ways, both the Global Fragility Act and mm-hmm. the, the Global Pandemic Relief and Recovery Framework, I think the other thing that's really important to remember, and it can't be stressed enough, is that, you know, communities are in dire need of assistance. And the longer this pandemic lasts, the more that need will grow. And it's really, really important that humanitarian development and peace building programs are funded simultaneously uh, in tandem with each other. Right. Right. Um, The American Rescue Plan, which was passed in, in March 2021, includes almost $11 billion in foreign assistance. And it's really critical that those resources are allocated and dispersed with efficiency, and that they are targeted not only for the pandemic's health impacts, but also the non-health impacts. And that includes, as our research demonstrates, and as we've been stressing throughout this conversation, prioritizing conflict prevention, prioritizing violence reduction, and most importantly, you know, supporting sustained peace building. Well, in that vein, that was going to be my next comment. And this is a really big issue with Liz, I know, but Mercy, the Mercy Corps report calls for increased funding to a number of peace building accounts within the U.S. government foreign assistance budget. And how would these accounts be used? I and mean, you've just described some of this way to address the exacerbated drivers of conflict. But as uh, Liz has said, and I personally know through my work, this has to be funded for sustained periods of time. It is, she has just alluded to, and, and as you as well, Mayusha, is that you just can't do this overnight. You can't do it in two years or even five years. What are your thoughts on that, Liz? No, absolutely. That's the point of the Global Fragility Act. And what is so frustrating is we have the Global Fragility Act and there's a lot going on. I mean, there was in 2019, it was passed in December 2019. There were benchmarks that had to be met in September 2020, December um, 2020, where they would identify countries for the priority countries and they would put out strategy and country frameworks. A strategy did come out in late 2020, but we're still not there yet. We don't have these priority countries. We don't have country plans. And it is frustrating, you know, and and we understand there's a pandemic and, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, but we know what works. And Congress has said, take this approach, right? Let's, let's work on conflict prevention as well. And, you know, we, we are a strong proponent that the Global Fragility Act has to be implemented. Then what has to happen, or even now, is take those principles. And we argued for this in an article last spring, and then apply them to the current pandemic. And that's really important. And like I said, that's what the new strategy for the Northern Triangle calls for that Biden has put forth. You know, a coordinated plan with the U.S. government interagency plan, communication plan, you know, looking at, you know, the root causes and the drivers, the, you know, the conflict dynamic. So, you know, it can be a little frustrating, (laughs) um, you know, to know that we have the tools and we have the knowledge, but they need to be applied. 
Just to, to come in, I think another key piece of applying this knowledge is to really center the commitment within the Global Fragility Act around local participation and mm -hmm. really centering you know, local experiences in the design of strategies and the design of approaches. And I think this was central to our methodology for this study, but this type of really rich local consultation will be really essential also to the strategic planning process for the Global Fragility Act, um, because you know Liz was talking about you know really identifying and treating root causes, and communities are best placed to be able to identify those root causes and dynamics, as well as many potential solutions. And you know even in the research, um, particularly I, I wrote the case study on Nigeria, and there were cases of small scale community led efforts to maintain peace building um, during lockdown, right, to use mobile phones um, to um, continue uh, conflict mitigation and negotiations between communities and numbers of other really locally led innovative efforts that are small scale. And, and so really, in addition to centering kind of our knowledge of what works and our evidence base, centering that local participation and engagement in the GFA, and, and that's really making good on that commitment. So, Maisha and Ryan, I'd like you both to to respond to to the question that. So, what are the policy implications of your findings, and what should donors, governments, and practitioners be doing to address these concerning trends? And what I heard you say, Maisha, is not only do you have to increase assistance for humanitarian reasons, but you have to increase investments so that you can continue to build and work on peace building and the process of that. I'd really like to hear your uh, thoughts on the implications and how you would see them addressed in terms of, of not only Mercy Corps support, but governments and probably international NGOs and uh, organizations like the UN. Thanks, Tanya. Indeed, the most important takeaway from our research is that the pandemic and response measures have increased the risk of conflict, even where it has not triggered immediate violence. And this is something that Liz was alluding to before. How do we move from a reactive approach that treats symptoms to a proactive approach that is centered on conflict prevention? That's really the number one takeaway and, and our call to action, if you will. And, and then as Ryan mentioned, you know, I think it's really, really important not just to consult with, but engage directly with communities and to ensure that policies and programs are conflict sensitive, that they are rooted in ground realities, and to listen to and heed those warning signs that communities are going to be sharing if we take the time to listen to them and try to understand what it is that they're saying. You know, in many ways, it's kind of thinking like this, which is everyone likes to talk about early warning, monitoring, and conflict prevention. Well, the testimonies of communities are early warnings, and we ought to be heeding them and making sure we, we're addressing them. I think the other thing, and again, this is something that we've alluded to over, over the course of the conversation, is that um, whether we're talking about attacks by armed opposition groups, banditry by criminal gangs, or gender-based violence within households during the pandemic, we have to look at the linkages between them, different types of violence, as well as different types of conflict, understand how they shape each other and may even be mutually reinforcing. And to therefore, you know, we recommend in our report that conflict prevention and peace building approaches are adapted to anticipate, track, and address various types of conflicts mm -hmm. and various risks of violence, right? You asked earlier about, about the resources piece, and indeed, as, as part of our report, um, or, or in addition to it, we issued a policy brief in which we call for a significant expansion um, in terms of investments, both short-term and long-term, mm -hmm. in order to support this kind of work. And so, you know, with respect to, for example, the fiscal year 2022 budget, you know, we identify several funds among them the Prevention and Stabilization Fund, the uh, Multi-Donor Global Fragility Fund, um, the Complex Crises Fund, the Atrocities Prevention Fund, the Conflict Stabilization Operations Fund. It's really important to ensure that that investments are made in these various funds because as as I think and I hope is you know obvious to, to listeners by this point, not only is it important to robustly fund these various 
activities and priorities, but that how we support one can have very important and real effects on the others. And so that holistic approach needs to be reflected in, in the programming and also in the funding. Right. Thank you. Ryan. I mean, I think Maisha covered a lot of it uh, very well. I think the only other that I will underline going back to um, a thread of conversation that was brought up earlier is to really, you know, draw attention to ways in which these conflict risks um, are impacting different community members, such as youth or women differently. So really thinking about building in a youth and, and gender lens into investments. And that also means, you know, as we've been discussing, building in that broad, inclusive participation in the design of these investments. And I, I think just having that lens is also important beyond and in addition to everything that my issue um, outlined as well. Thank you. So this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, we will link to your report uh, so podcast uh, listeners can access it. But before we go, I wanted to ask, of uh, the three of you is, uh, and we can start, let's start with Mercy Corps, uh, Maisha, uh, what can advocates and our listeners do to help push these um, policy recommendations forward? And should they be calling their members of Congress among others? Thanks so much, Tanya. And this is such an important question. You know, as Liz mentioned earlier, the pandemic is far from over for most of the world. It's certainly not over here in the U.S. either, but especially in countries that have yet to have any, you know, kind of access to vaccines or are experiencing second, third, fourth waves. The pandemic is far from over. And so we need to keep that in mind and, and act and move forward with that knowledge and that recognition. Absolutely. In terms of what listeners can do, please call your members of Congress, your senators, your representatives, and ask them to prioritize these issues. You know, call for the full implementation of the Global Fragility Act. I think many of the things that Liz mentioned in terms of not only specifying the countries, but how we do it is so critically important. Raise these issues um, online with your your friends, your family, your professional networks. But certainly, letters, phone calls to members of Congress is is incredibly important. And advocate, uh, you know, in your circles so that this conversation continues, it grows, and that we bring more people in to understand what's at stake, why it matters so much, and the fact that you know this is not just about some far off place in the distance where there's no linkage to us here at home. No, everything is interconnected. And, you know, how we make, what choices we make now are going to have very important effects in the future. And so we need to be mindful of that and understand that. Thank you. Ryan. I echo all of that. And I do think that, you know, if you know, reading this report is an opportunity to both learn about the experiences throughout this pandemic globally, um, whether it's, um, you know, Afghanistan, Colombia, and Nigeria, or other settings, and to both learn and then boost and share those voices, and whether that is on social media, in your networks, to your representatives of, you know, using whatever platform you have to help amplify voices, because I think it can be easy to be stuck in our experience of this pandemic and where we are. Um, but as, as Liz mentioned, you know, we're in a moment of relatively moving in some ways forward with vaccination. And I think that being able to illuminate both these kind of shared um, experiences globally, but also these these really dire needs and, and threats and amplifying those voices and experiences is a real opportunity to come out of this uh, study. Thank you. Liz, you get the last word. I think they both said it really well. And I know it's really hard how, from also from a mental health how people have had to deal with this here in the United States or in whatever country they are. And if you're slowly coming out of it, just understand how it's impacting the rest of the world. Um, raise your awareness on it. No one is safe until everyone is safe. And we know viruses know no boundaries. And we've seen the Delta variant come on, you know, due to a, a highly, you know, unvaccinated population. And we're going to see, we're going to probably continue to see more variants. So get educated on it, understand these issues, you know, right to, especially within, uh, you know, the Foreign Affairs Committee, 
And, you know, if you have a representative on these committees, that, that's probably the best place to start. But really just understand how this is a global pandemic. And, you know, it, it's not only just vaccinating, getting through the health, but it's also understanding the conflict dynamics that it's going to have and what that also means, what that really means on people's lives. People lose their lives. Property is destroyed. Um, you know, we also have one in 33 people in the world need humanitarian assistance. Right now, we have a global refugee displaced person problem. Over 80 million people have had to leave their homes due to conflict and, you know, forced displacement. Those numbers surpass World War II numbers. So think about it on that global scale and understand how this is impacting those conflict dynamics. And we're the United States, right? You know, we can make sure that our people in the United States are vaccinated. We can have an incredible impact. And, and I really praise the Biden administration for prioritizing vaccines as well. But this is something that is not going to go away and can continue. Um, and we do have the resources and tools to fix it. So that's really just my plea. Thank you so much. So I want to thank our guests today for their participation. Thanks for tuning in to Peace We Build It. And thanks to our guests, Maisha Alam and Ryan Sheely of Mercy Corps and Liz Hume of the Alliance for Peace Building. The Peace We Build It podcast is made possible through the financial support of the Alliance for Peace Building based in Washington, D.C. Tanya Domi is the host and senior fellow for communications at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, and Kevin Wolf, the audio engineer, provides technical assistance. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple, and where all podcasts are found.